once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How do you explain air to a child? The child experiences air by breathing or feeling the wind, but it may be a few years until the child grasps what gases are or an atmosphere is. Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this message entitled, Backside Glory or Full Glory covers Exodus chapter 33 verses 18 to 23, chapter 34 verses 29 to 35, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 to chapter 4 verse 6. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So have you ever felt like people around you are seeing something you're not? Let me show you this. This was popular back when I was in high school. You remember these? Some of the youth right now are going, wait, that was popular? <laughs> that we didn't have smartphones, so just bear with us. This is all we had. Um, these were called, I think, magic eye posters. And these are 3D posters where apparently if you stare at them long enough and a 3D image comes out, but I was never able to do it. In fact, I'm hoping that there's nothing inappropriate on this one because I can't see it. I I don't know. (laughs) I hear somebody gasp in a moment. I'll know. Hey, take it down. All right. But I would stare at this. A buddy of mine had one of these on on the wall in his bedroom. And I can remember just for 10, 15 minutes at a time, just staring at this and making myself dizzy because all these coaching tips, all right, what you need to do is you need to barely cross your eyes, let your eyes go fuzzy and then pull back a little bit and then look like a complete crazy person and it'll come out at you. And I never, I never could do it. You should have seen me in my office uh, preparing the sermon, looking at my screen, trying to make, and I still couldn't do it. And it would always frustrate me. I would hate the people that we could do it. They just walk up and with a matter of seconds, they're like, oh, wow, there's dolphins jumping out at you. That's really cool. And I'm like, Where? I just see chaos or, or, or it's like anytime Rachel asked me to get something out of the pantry. <laughs> Apparently this is a male thing. He's like, sweetie, can you get the brown sugar out of the pantry? Sure. Be happy to open the pantry, stare for a little bit, look all around. Uh, I don't think we have any brown sugar. Yeah, we do. I just got it yesterday. It's right there. I don't think so, babe. Not seeing it. It's right in front of you. Where? And she walks over, looks at me as she reaches right there. Really? You didn't see that? It's the way God created the male species. We have some just inability to see things in the pantry. It's unbelievable. Or it's, it's like the, um, one of the top five movies of all time. And this is not debatable. Field of dreams. Yeah. Kevin Costner. What a great film. This is the film about uh, where Kevin Costner is a, is a, a corn farmer in Iowa. And he starts hearing a voice in the field one day when he's out working and the voice tells him to build a baseball field and he gets a vision of it and he says, okay. Right. And so he builds this field and there's all of all, all kinds of reasons behind why he's, why he does it. And People think, he, think he's lost his mind. He's, he's mowed down a big portion of his cash crop. 
his income for the year and he starts losing money like crazy. And, but what people don't realize is that only Ray, who was Kevin Costner, only Ray and his family can see what's actually happening on the field, which is all of these legends from the past, from baseball past are coming and they're playing on this field, but no one can see it except for Ray and his family. So everyone else looks at this blank field and says, this man is crazy. What has he done? But Ray sees it, his, his wife and daughter sees it. And something happens at the end, and I'm not going to tell you why. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't seen it, you've had since 1989. It's, it's, it's time to see it. But something happens at the end. And all of a sudden, in a matter of just a moment, everyone else is able to see it. They see the players. In fact, one of the persons, one of the characters says, where did all these baseball players come from? And Ray's wife laughs and says, they've been here the whole time. You just couldn't see them. And Ray's brother-in-law had been on him the whole entire movie. Like, you've got to sell this farm, Ray. You've got to sell this farm. You've got no money. You've built a baseball field. What, have you, what do you think? You've got to sell it. And is it the first thing that he says, when this moment happens and everyone else can see that these legends are on the field, he says, don't sell this farm, Ray. You better not sell this farm. Everything has changed. The scriptures talk a lot about seeing, seeing with the eyes of faith, the glory of God, to be able to see what the rest of the watching world looks at and says, what do you see about this Jesus thing? Are you crazy? But the scriptures talk about being able to see and comprehend through the eyes of our hearts not necessarily physically see, although that will be true one day when Christ returns and we will see in full glory with physical eyes all of the glory and splendor of God and Jesus. But until then, there's this metaphorical, this, this seeing of the heart through eyes of faith that God says, this is part of the Christian experience. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. I think one of the biggest struggles for the Christian is that we often struggle to realize, to see the treasure that we possess in Jesus. Because here's what this text that we're going to look at today is going to show us. And this is language straight from the passage in 2 Corinthians that we're going to look at. It's simply this. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the treasure of human existence. You want to know why you exist? You want to know why you were put on this ball that floats in space? And what's the meaning of life? Why are we here? The answer, according to the word of God, is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the treasure of all, of, of all human existence. The whole point of life is that we would come to a place by God's grace to where we are able to see his glory in the face of Jesus and treasure him above all things. And that's where we're going to go today. Now, in the text that we're going to look at today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on in the book of Exodus. And then we're going to look at this text in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. And as we read through it here in a minute, you may realize, you may begin to notice how often the word glory is used. And I'll go ahead and tell you, in this passage, glory is used 14 times. 
And there's going to be, I've admittedly, uh, I want to just own up to the fact that I've probably bit off a little more than I can chew in this text and that there is a lot of things that I would like to speak to that you're, as you're going to read through it, there's going to be some significant things that you might be thinking, is he going to speak to that? And the answer is probably no, I'm not. And I apologize for that because what I'm going to do is I'm going to zoom in on the major theme and thread of this passage, which is the glory of God. And glory is something that we have a real hard time with. It's a word that we use often and appropriately. So it's Again, it's the purpose of our existence, according to the Westminster Confession of Faith that we use here in our tradition. The very first question is, what are we here for? What is the purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's all about his glory. And so glory is a major theme, central theme of the Bible, the glory of God. But we struggle defining glory. Because glory of God is something that is, is infinite and we're finite. It's something that we say is about his majesty, about his splendor, about his renown, about, his, about the brightness even of, of just this Shekinah glory, as the scriptures say, of, of how bright his presence is to where you're blinded and you can't look at him. And we try to give context and meaning and definition and words to it, but we always fall short. We always say that's not enough. That's not sufficient. I wish there was another way to say this. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, says it this way. He says, to squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to cram the entire body of a fully developed elephant into a thimble. We try, and it's okay to try. We need to try to put word and meaning to something like glory, but we really struggle with it. And it's okay to try to define it, although it's always going to be lacking. And uh, one of my other favorite authors, a guy named John Piper, uh, attempted to do this. And this was his simple definition of God's glory. He said, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Infinite beauty of his manifold perfections. And that helps us a little bit, but ultimately glory is not something that uh, that you can really ultimately put words to. Glory is something more that you point to than define. There's all kinds of things that we can describe and use words and you walk away from that description going, okay, I think I have a good picture in my mind of what that is. For example, let's say I take a chair and for whatever reason, you, you've never seen a chair. And I just simply say to you, hey, a chair is this really cool contraption where it has four legs that stabilize it on the ground and it has this seat for you to be able to sit in and take all the weight off your legs so that in an environment like this where someone is speaking to you for half an hour, you get to rest and not be tired and pay attention. And the person walks away from that going, wow, I, I think I understand what a chair is. You can put word to it, put words to it and language to it in a way that you describe it and the person goes, I get it. Not so with Glory. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been, and I've, I've, been, uh, I've been very thankful and spoiled over the years to get to travel to a lot of different places and see some beautiful sights. But I think the one that I always come back to the most that I imagine when I think of what is the most glorious thing I have ever seen in the landscape of God's creation. And I always go back to the Rocky Mountain National Park just outside of Estes Park, Colorado. Rachel and I would go every other summer with crew and go to our national conference there. 
And we would always, and as our kids got older, we would take them with us because we wanted them to see it as well. We'd always take this same road into the park that would wind its way around the valley and then eventually up the side of the mountain. And as you get higher and higher up the mountain, your, your view becomes more and more breathtaking to where the, the, the peak is you're finally at 12,000 feet. And it's July and it's cold and there's snow. And you're looking down though, it's spring and summer. And you look out at the horizon and you see this peak over here and this peak over here and this 14,000 here and this, and this and Pike's peak over here. And, but then you look down and that's where your eyes go first is you look down and you see the green grass and the winding river and the flowers and the elk and all these things. And you go, this is incredibly glorious. But even now, as I describe that to you, mostly what you're thinking is that must've been really cool for Jeff. Sounds pretty. But I'm telling you, when I was there, it was more than this is cool and that's pretty. It was this stirring, moving glory that I was experiencing in the creation of God himself to where what would have been way more powerful instead of describing it to you is if I could take you with me. And as we began the trek up the mountain, I blindfolded you and we get up there and I don't take the blindfold off until you get to the spot where you're looking out and I take it out and I don't say anything and I just say, look, and you say that is glorious. And then as a believer, one who does know Jesus, maybe your next thought is, is this. This was my thought is that I'm looking upon this that is absolutely captivatingly glorious. And I'm thinking this was created not to be glorious in and of itself, but to point to his infinite glory. Wow. So this is just a, a little needle, a little drop in the bucket of glory compared to the what to the glory that it's pointing to, which is God's glory himself. So the splendor, the majesty, the, the crazy beauty of God is what we try to wrap up in this word glory, but we always fall short. But here's what we can say about glory. What we can say about glory is that it's more, the glory of God is more than just his holiness and his perfection. It certainly encompasses that, but it's not just that he's sinless. It's not just that he's perfect. You ever thought about this? The, the angels created beings that actually serve us as followers of Christ, according to Hebrews. They're morally righteous. They're sinless, but you don't see people, you don't see seraphim and cherubim, uh, which are these angel-like figures surrounding them saying, holy, holy, holy are the angels almighty who was and is and is to come. It's only God and his throne. Do you see that in the scriptures of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And then isn't it interesting that then you hear it here uh, in the scriptures, you hear it said, and the whole earth is filled with his, you would think holiness, right? They just said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. But what is it? Glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. It's much more than just holiness and holiness is profound, but it's just this upping the ante, if you will, of holiness to this place of otherness, uniqueness. The glory of God is something that only God himself possesses and no other created being or object in all of the universe possesses what he possesses in his glory. In fact, it all exists for his glory. And you go, okay, 
I kind of get it. But what's the point? Here's the point. The reason you and I exist is to begin in this life before this life passes and we, if we know Jesus, are with him in full glory to begin to see his glory now and orient our lives around his glory. And the only way that we see it, the only person through whom we see it is Jesus. That's what we're gonna see in this text. But before we do, I wanna tell you about something that happens that connects to this text in Exodus. Exodus 33 and 34, you don't have to turn there, but your assignment is I want you to read Exodus 33 and 34 this week. Okay, I'm gonna tell you about what happens in it now, but you can read it on your own and say, you know what, he was telling the truth. That really did happen in Exodus 33 and 34. What happens in Exodus 33 is we're picking up mid-story when Moses is is on top of Mount Sinai getting the 10 commandments, but this isn't the first time that he's getting the 10 commandments. What happened before was uh, Caleb preached last week about Joseph out of the narrative of Joseph. Well, Genesis, the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And Joseph has brought Jacob, his father, and all of his brothers and their whole families down to Egypt. And so the, the nation of Israel, the sons and the daughters of those brothers are now in Egypt. And for 400 years after king, uh, new kings come and they forget who Joseph was and they forget the favor uh, that they had under Joseph, they say, look, we got a bunch of people here who aren't like us, who we could make into slaves. And so that's what they do. And so for 400 years, the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And so Exodus begins having picked up there in the story of Moses, where God, after 400 years, is now raising up this Israelite-born man, Moses, but who was raised in the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he's, he's using him to lead God's people, Exodus, out of Egypt and into their own land. And he does this through a number of miracles with the plagues and with the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and all kinds of crazy things that happen as the, as the people of God trek towards this new land. And so we drop in on the story where God has called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai and he's given him the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel uh, do the, the very thing that we see to be true in our hearts and are true of all of humanity is this, is that we are a people who are quick to forget the glory of God. Because these people have just seen God lead them in miraculous, glorious ways out of bondage and out of slavery and yet Moses is up there for uh, longer than they want him to be up there and in that time they, they shape a God in their own image. They shake a, shape a God with gold and make a golden calf and they begin to worship it. And Moses comes off the mountain and he's so angry at what he sees. He slams the tablets down. God pronounces judgment upon them. He relents on the judgment that he was gonna do. All that, I, I could go into more detail. We're on the mountain again. Let's get the commandments 2.0. That's what God's calling Moses to do. So he's up on the mountain and God, in, in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, let me see your glory. Now Moses is is naive. He doesn't know what he's asking for. He's not fully understanding that he cannot live in the presence of God in all of his glory and all of his holiness. But God surprisingly says yes with one caveat. He says, I will pass before you all of my goodness, 
will pass before you, but I'm going to put you in the crevice of this rock, in this little uh, cleft of the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you, whatever that looked like. That must have been amazing. And I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by you. And then when I'm almost fully by you, I'm going to remove my hand, and you're going to get a glimpse, just a smidgen of the backside of my glory. And so that's what happens. And Moses sees this, this glimpse, this backside glory of, Jesus, of God, if you will. And, and then Exodus 34 tells us what happens is that when he's finished with getting the commandments again and seeing this little snippet of God's glory, he comes off the mountain and he has no idea that his face is glowing, reflecting the glory of God that he has behold, beheld. And he comes down the mountain and can you imagine what that would have looked like and how freaked out people would have been? Uh, 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 Moses, dude, have you looked in the mirror? Something crazy is going on with your face, man. This glory was so captivating. This glory was so powerful that he is naturally having been in the presence of glory, now displaying that glory. And the people of Israel were terrified. I mean, I was making a joke about it. They weren't saying, hey, have you looked in the mirror? They're like, oh my goodness. And they're, they're terrified to the point to where Moses has to put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would be comfortable around Moses because they're not comfortable as sinners in the presence of glory. That's the background to this text in 2 Corinthians. So now here we are, fast forward, New Testament. Christ has come. Christ has paid the penalty of our sin on the cross. Christ has opened the way now to God to direct access to the Father through his sacrifice and resurrection. And now the apostle Paul is giving us instruction on what it means, what we possess in Jesus. Listen to what he says, verse seven of chapter three. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that's the 10 commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Let me pause and just say this. He's given all of these little caveats to what he's talking about with the 10 commandments and the law. And I just want to be sure you understand that the law is good. The 10 commandments are good and holy and pure. And so he's not saying that the law and the 10 commandments are the ministry of death. He's saying that they produce the ministry of death. And that is this, the law, even though good and showing us the heart of God ultimately condemns us because we can't live it out. We can't achieve the law. Our life is evidence day in and day out, day out of our inability to achieve the law of God. And so it condemns us. The 10, the 10 commandments condemn us. They're the, they're the ministry of death, according to Paul. And so he's saying, but look, if that ministry of death came with such glory that he had to veil his face because of what happened there in the presence of God, listen to what he says, what his comparison is in verse eight. Will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? Believer in Jesus, if you are a person who has placed their faith in Christ, what that means of you is that you now have, upon belief on him, you now have the spirit of the living God living and dwelling within you, his glory resides in you. And so let me put this in layman's terms. What Paul is saying in this comparison, he's saying what you and I have as followers of Jesus is way better than what Moses got in the glimpse of the backside glory of God in the cleft of that rock. Do you believe that? I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I find myself saying things like, God, if I, if I could just get what you gave Moses, it would be a lot easier to follow you. If I could just see a glimpse of your glory, 
backside glory, if you will. It sure would be a lot easier to not doubt, to not wonder, to not question. But according to this text, according to what the word of God is telling us right here, we have something so much better and more glorious with the spirit of God dwelling within us. He keeps going. He says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So here's the first thing I want you to see, four observations I want you to take away today. The first one is this. There's a glory that has been surpassed. A glory surpassed. This glory that Moses experienced is surpassed by the glory that we now have access to in Christ. We now possess something in Jesus that we far too often don't realize the glory of. Second thing I want you to notice, he starts breaking down in verse 12. There's a veiled glory He says, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Here's what Paul is saying. He's taking this historical happening with Moses and he's using it now as an analogy, as a metaphor for what is true of every unbeliever, every person who rejects Christ. And he's applying it primarily to the Jewish people, his people who have rejected Christ. He's saying a veil remains over their hearts anytime they listen and hear the scriptures because the law of Moses was the scriptures back then. They didn't have the New Testament. So whenever they hear the scriptures, a veil lies over their their hearts and they can't see and they can't comprehend. And then he says, but it is only through Christ that the veil is removed. And so he's making this analogy to say, this is true of every person who rejects the authority of King Jesus. That a veil is over your heart. You don't see his beauty. You don't see his glory. You don't see his majesty. You don't see these things. And you look upon Christ and you look upon those who follow Christ as nonsense as foolishness, as 1 Corinthians says. But there's also a glory that is unveiled. Look at that language in verses 16 and following. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Praise be to God. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's a whole nother sermon for a different day. Beautiful language there. That it is the spirit of God that brings the freedom from the condemnation of the law, that brings freedom from sin and death that we so long for. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. And then verse 18, if you're looking to to memorize a verse in this passage, make it verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, because of Christ removing the veil for us, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That word beholding is not just an observation. It's not just observing the glory of the Lord. It's actually a participation. It's active. It's the same thing that happened to Moses. It's a, the word actually is getting at not just beholding, but mirroring the glory of God. So when we see the glory of God, 
in Jesus, we begin to actually reflect that same glory to the world around us. It's not just a beholding, it's a participating in the glory of God. And so he says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of Lord, we are being transformed, we're being changed into the same image from one degree of what? Of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what he's doing is that we are created for his glory. And when we come to faith in Christ, we're able to see his glory and be captivated by it. And then our lives between now and when we go to be with him in full glory is this ever increasing step in experiencing more and more of his glory and orienting our lives around his glory, not our own. Because we realize the more we walk with him that there never was really glory for self. He was all a sham. It was fake glory. There's only one true glory and it's found in the face of Jesus. And so we began to reorient our lives by his grace around that. So lastly, there's a seen glory. There's a glory that is seen. It's not just unveiled, but we see it. The scriptures say that you can see and not perceive. And so what I'm talking about here and what this passage is talking about is seeing and perceiving God's glory. Listen to the language in chapter four. We'll start in verse three. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, those who are rejecting Jesus. Verse four, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? From seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now look at verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So he's going all the way back to the creation account. The same God who by the power of his word said, let there be light and light happened is the same God who shines into our own hearts, bringing light into the dark crevices of our hearts. And he says, let the, the, uh, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't remember if I told you this part, because at this point in the sermon, I can't remember what I've said in the nine o'clock and what I've said here. But back in Exodus 33 and 34, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God's response was, okay, yes, but he specifically said twice in Exodus 33, you can see a glimpse of my glory, but you cannot see my face because you cannot look at the face of God and live. And when we begin to get that, what happens in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is profound. What Paul is telling us here is that we now have the ability through the finished work of Christ to stare at his face, the face of God through the face of Jesus, who is the son of God. You remember in John 14, John 14, six, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And Philip responds and says, what do you mean the way? What are you talking about the way? And Jesus's response is, Philip, have you not been with me for so long that you don't understand that whoever has seen me has seen the father? We stare into the face of Jesus and we begin to comprehend little by little the glory of God. And we're captivated by it and we're transformed by it. And we go, wow, this is incredible. You remember John 1.14? John 1.14 says this, and the word, that's Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen it? I want to just apply this very quickly to three types of people. The first one is the non-believer. If you're here in this room or listening in some other format to this sermon and you think, you know what, I don't know that I believe this Jesus stuff or I, I know that I don't believe this Jesus stuff, then what's true of you according to the scriptures is that you have a veil over your eyes and you cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Christ is the only one who removes the veil. And so the call to you is to run to him to do what only he can do, to remove the veil that you have no power to remove. And it makes total, complete sense why you would look at me and these other Christians and think we're crazy. We get it. We know that was us at one point. You have a veil. Would you run to Jesus and ask him to remove it? That you may see the meaning and purpose of your life to be found in the glory of God. The second person I want to apply to is the nominal Christian. Nominal means in name only. Another term that we use for this is cultural Christian. This happens a lot in the South where uh, you're a Christian primarily by name. Uh, you, you hear this language about seeing the face of the glory of God in the face of Jesus and you go, okay, that sounds crazy and I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. I mean, uh, I go to church occasionally. I show up at places like this about once a month or at best at Christmas and Easter and uh, I was kind of born into this whole Christianity thing and to me, Christianity is nothing more than moralism and I just try to be good and uh, church helps me be better. If, if that's you, then I wanna say something very lovingly to you and please hear my heart in this is not condemnation, but to help you see and understand what the scriptures say. And it would simply be this, your understanding of Christianity is way off. That's not Christianity and that's not what God has called us into. And you're not a Christian. According to the scriptures, you are just as the non-believer. You have a veil and you haven't seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You haven't seen his majesty. You haven't seen his glory and you haven't been captivated by him in such a way to where you say it's not just about occasional church attendance and being good. It's about orienting, reorienting everything in my life to be about his glory and his glory alone. That's it. And so the third person I want to speak to is the normal Christian. You've got the non-believer, you've got the nominal Christian and the normal Christian. And that's simply this. What I just explained is the normal Christian life. Please hear me in this. When I say it, to see and experience kind of this, this whole glory of God in the face of Jesus is not necessarily, although this can happen, but most of the time it's not necessarily that you have this incredible emotional experience when your favorite worship song hits the crescendo of the bass line. And you say, oh my goodness, glory of God. Now that can happen, but really what it is is this. It's this understanding bit by bit that God is removing the veil and you're seeing his value. You're seeing that he is the treasure. And every day is simply taking steps of faith through eyes of faith to say, God, I want to orient my life around your glory. And we won't do it perfectly. We'll struggle with that. In the moments that we do, we do like we did this morning together as a corporate body. And we say, God, forgive me my sin for, the, for that period of time. Uh, I oriented my life around my glory. I thought I knew better than you. Would you forgive me and would you bring me back to you in your glory? Now, Randy didn't tell me to do this, but I am gonna plug his book. 
to me, the best explanation of everything I've been sharing this morning is found in his book that he wrote called The Answer. His subtitle is Putting an End to the Search for Life Satisfaction. And in the first six chapters of his book, and when you hear chapter, don't hear like, oh, wow, that's a lot of pages. Each chapter is like three pages. He writes about the story of glory. And so I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy of this, grab one on the way out. We have them in our bookstore. And uh, I, Randy would probably want, me to know, want you to know that if, you've, none of, if you buy that book, it, none of it goes to him. Um, but I want, we want you to know the story of glory. Now, let me end with this story. Hopefully this will bring it all together and help you kind of see it. When we moved here four years ago, we wanted our kids to love Atlanta. So we took them to... Uh, we took them to the aquarium. We were trying to take them to things like, hey, this is a cool city. Because it was a hard move for us. We loved where we moved from. And so we took them down to the aquarium and we had had a wonderful day there. It was incredible. And we were kind of on our way out and we realized we haven't gone to the 4D movie. That, that, we need to do that. And I didn't know what 4D was. Apparently it's the fourth dimension is that whatever's happening in 3D in front of you, you begin to feel. If there's wind on the screen, you get wind blown at you. If there's water, you get sprayed. And it's, it's quite surprising. So we go into this movie and, and they hand you 3D glasses on the way in. We all have our glasses on. We're all looking at the screen, waiting for it to start. And it starts. And within a matter of seconds, everybody's ooing and eyeing in the room. Just, oh, 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 you know, all these things. And I am the only one that's not doing that. Not because I'm an Eeyore, but because I'm not seeing it. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, what are you people seeing? Like, it's just fuzzy up there. And because I'm a little slow and it takes me a while, I finally realize something's wrong with my glasses. So my son's sitting next to me and being the great father that I am, I take mine and give them to his and I take his and I put it on my eyes. And as soon as I put them on, it was instantaneous. Oh, yeah, oh, I see it. Oh, this is really good. The shark's coming at me. I get it now, yeah. And it didn't last long because he's smart. And he's like, what are you, uh-uh. And he takes them back and he gives them mine. And I sit there for the rest of the movie watching a fuzzy screen while everyone else sees it. But I got a glimpse of it, enough of a glimpse of it to where I was like, I want more. And what this passage is telling us is this, is that we get to wear the glasses all the time. We get to wear the right glasses all the time to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Yet far too often, we revert back to wearing our faulty glasses and just getting little glimpses here and there and calling it Christianity when he says, no, you have full access to the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Use your eyes of faith that I've been given you to see the profound treasure that you possess in Jesus and walk with him every day and be deeply satisfied in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. He satisfies your soul. Why? Because he is glorious and you were created for him. This is the meaning of your existence. We get to wear the glasses all the time. Don't you want that? To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus is why we are alive. Father, thank you for this incredible truth of your glory. Thank you that we don't have to be content with short little passing glimpses. 
these backside glory glimpses of you, but we get to have these full glory gazes, these long stares into the face of Jesus, not just now, but for all of eternity. And in gazing into your face, Jesus, we see, we see the meaning and the purpose of why we are created. So Lord, give us your power through your Holy Spirit to see this morning. Would you remove the veil for those that need the veil removed? Would you put the glasses back on for others who have reverted back to looking through their old faulty glasses? May we see you in all your glory, not just now, but throughout today, tomorrow, and the days and the months and the years to come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.